So there wasn't like no point to that. There was absolutely a point to that. Here's the point, is that in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, what James is going to do is make a series of statements and ask a series of questions, and he's going to lead us to this moment of embarrassment a little bit. Right? He's going he's gonna to start asking questions and start making statements. And all the while, we're going to know, you know what? I know where this is going. I know what the punchline of this is going to be. I'm going to say underwear. In church, by the way. You ask forgiveness for that. Right? So I know that's where it's headed. I know that's where the joke's going. And in James' case, this is not a joke. But he's going to lead us by asking questions, making statements to this conclusion. And for James, the conclusion is absolutely mission critical to living the Christian life. Okay? So let me walk you through. I'm going to give you a little bit of a roadmap before we read the scripture. I'm going to give you a little bit of a roadmap of what James is going to do to kind of lead us toward this critical punchline. First is he's going to share with us a life principle, a, a commandment. Of, you know, we'll read it here in a minute, but it's a commandment. It's, don't do this. Don't do this. And start with the principle. Then he's going to say, hypothetically speaking, let, let, let me give you an example of a place where that principle might play itself out. You might have the opportunity to heed this thing or not heed this thing, but here's an example of how it's going to play out. Third, he's going to give us the reasoning behind why we would obey this principle. And then, then he's going to make this turn, and here's, here's where the turn comes. Here's the punchline. He's going to turn it to talk about the good news about Jesus. He's going to turn it to talk about the gospel. He's going to turn it to talk about our status before God, our standing before God, and how God sees us and sees others. But he's going to walk us through these steps in order to get to right here. This is the critical step. This is where he's headed the whole time. This is his punchline, okay? You with me? This is the point of the thing. If we say that this is the point of James 2, 1 through 13, we're going to miss the point. It's one of the points, but this is the main point, right? This is the main thing, and this is where he's leading us the whole way. So let's start here with the principle in James chapter 2, verse 1. James writes this, My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. My brothers, here's the principle, here's the commandment, show no partiality. That is not complicated. Don't be biased. Don't be racist. Don't be classist. Don't treat people differently based on their external appearances. In other words, he says, don't play favorites. This is not a complicated principle. It really isn't. Don't play favorites. That's the principle. Why? Well, let's get there in a minute. Let's get there in a minute. That's, that, that's, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. So, so let's, here, here's what James is saying. The definition of partiality, the definition of bias or playing favorites is this. It's withholding or providing anything based on external appearances. Whatever that thing is, if you withheld money, if you withheld relationship, if you withheld time, if you withheld a smile, if you withheld your laugh, at my joke, based on external appearances, then that's, that's partiality, that's bias. 
Okay. Uh, somebody asked in the first service, look, if somebody shows up to a group event and they're misbehaving and they're abusive and they're this and that and whatever, and we say, man, you can't show up here anymore. Is that playing favorites? Is that showing bias, partiality? No, because now you withheld relationship based on behavior. James is saying, don't withhold whatever that, whatever that thing is, whatever that good thing is, don't withhold it based on external appearances. The contrary is also, converse is also true. Don't provide extra favors, extra time, extra energy, extra laughter to somebody based on appearances. Just because you have a lot in common with somebody and based on their external appearances, you, you, know, you laugh hysterically at their joke, right? No, because they have more money, because they have some kind of status, because they're good looking or whatever. You know what's funny? I watch this happen around here all the time. And I don't know why it is, but like People think that the pastor boy is, you know, is the guy to talk to on Sunday morning, right? So I'm literally, I'm literally after the first service, I'm standing with people, and five or six people come up and talk to me and don't say hi to the people I'm standing with. I mean, I, I watch it. It's partiality. That's what it is. I, I hate to say it. Actually, I don't hate to say it. It felt kind of good. But, but let's put our finger on it. That's what that is. It's called partiality. And so James says, don't do that. Don't play favorites. And he says, why? He says, don't show partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You see, I love what James does is he says, that he gives us this principle, but he hangs this entire principle on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He hangs it on the glory of God. Watch, this is why this is important. Let's say that somebody famous came in here this morning. And we've had famous people here before. We've had like NHL players here before. You know, I'm here pretty regularly. Like we have famous people, right? <laughs> but let's say that someone even more famous than me came in and someone in the first service suggested, hey, how about Donald Trump? I'm like, yeah, that could get a little sticky. So let's do Kim and Kanye, okay? Kim and Kanye. So Kanye West is like a rapper, a producer, all this stuff. And, and Kim... Is, is married to Kanye, and he, and then they're famous. And they have Chicago, and North, and True, and Psalm, Psalm yeah, Psalm now. And like, oh man, what do you name it? Wyoming, they have Wyoming West, I think, is one of their children. I don't know, I don't know, whatever. But let's say they all came in this morning. And I've told you this before, I like the Kardashians. I think they're kind of cool to watch. It's a little bit like a train wreck, but that's fine. Um, and I like, I like Kanye. I'm not saying go listen to Kanye's music, but I think he's a creative guy and all this stuff. And, and that would be interesting to me. So if Kanye and Kim sat on either side of me on a given Sunday morning, I think that'd be kind of cool. I'd want to ask Kim some questions. I would want to ask Kanye some questions. It'd be nice to be friends with them and neat to talk to them. And then James says, okay, let's say that that happens, and then the Lord of glory walks in the room. The one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The one who said, I can't even show you my face. If I do, you will die. So what I'm going to do is put you up in this baptistry and put my hand over the top of it. And as I pass, you'll get a little glimpse of my back. That's all you can take. Now, how cool is it that Kim and Kanye are sitting with me? Zero cool. That doesn't bother me at all anymore. All right? Because God's richer than the richest person I know. He's more famous than the most famous person I know. He's got more talent than the most talented person I know, right? He says, it's the Lord of glory. Picture that. 
And that's where we hang this principle on, not showing partiality. So there's the principle, not complicated. Number two, here's the example. Ready? He gives an example. Let's say a man uh, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. Not complicated, right? Hypothetical situation. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James says, hypothetically speaking, two guys come into the room, one rich, one poor. You're really nice to the rich man. You show honor and deference to the poor, rich man. But you don't pay attention to the poor man. You make him stand. There's no place to sit, whatever. You've shown distinctions. You've shown partiality. You've played favorites. Don't do that. But he says a couple of things here that are really fascinating, I think. The first is this one. He says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. Now, if you know the New Testament at all, some of you do, some of you don't. doesn't matter. Either way, we're okay. Typically, this word assembly is the Greek word ekklesia. When you see the word church in the New Testament, it's typically the word ecclesia. It just means gathering. 2,000 years ago, it meant a gathering of any kind, and then they applied it to the church. They just called, we're just, we're just the ecclesia, the gathering of Christians. And in this case, this word assembly in the original language is not ecclesia. This word in the original language is synagogue. Here's why. Because Jews at the time worshipped at the temple, but they also had these other kind of alternative sites where they would read the scrolls together and teaching and conversation. They were places of worship called synagogues. And so when all of these uh, Jews in the early church, James himself was a Jew, said, hey, we've all been waiting on this Messiah guy, and we believe that Jesus is that guy. They just continued to worship in the places they had always worshipped in, temples and synagogues, Right? So here's the deal. In the synagogue, in the Jewish synagogue, in that time and place, they sat you by rank. Like rank in culture. Like what you do for a living, how much money you have or don't have, how much of the Bible that you know or don't know, you know, how many things you, you know, how much education you have, especially religious education. They would kind of sit you by rank so that you knew who were the influencers and who were not, who were the haves and who were the have-nots. And James says, no, 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 no. When that, when somebody comes into a synagogue, we're not going to do that anymore. We don't seat people by rank. For in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, nor slave nor free, nor male nor female. All in Christ are one. So we're not going to do that anymore. I think that's fascinating. Second thing he says, he says a man wearing a gold ring and a poor man in shabby clothing. Quite literally, this, this phrase here is a gold-ringed man. A gold-ringed man. Not just a man wearing a single gold ring, but a man wearing multiple gold rings. Back then in first century Palestine, men typically would not wear rings on their right hand because it was a sign of effeminacy. So they would wear rings on their left hand. And the more rings that you had, the richer you were. The more rings you had, the more powerful you were. The more rings you had, the more influence you had. And people would wear, uh, there's even accounts of, in Roman history of people wearing five rings on each finger. It's like Michael Jordan, you know, with all his NBA championship rings or whatever it is. And people had seasonal rings. Can you believe that? 
like, these are my fall rings, right? These are my summer rings, a little lighter, right, for the summertime. They had winter rings. They had, I mean, this was, this was crazy. It was ostentatious culture. And he says, someone comes in, and he's a gold-ringed man. You know he's an influencer. You know he's rich. You know he's powerful. And at the same time, a poor man comes in in shabby clothing. When we read that word shabby, we think dirty, dingy, holy, torn, ripped, whatever. But what James is also indicating here is this man is ceremonially unclean. He's not done the washing required in order to worship in Jewish culture. He's not put himself together in order to worship in Jewish culture. He's not prepared to go into the synagogue. He typically wouldn't be allowed even to go into the temple. So when James begins to draw this distinction, a cursory read says, oh, this is about rich and poor. And it's about much more than that. It's less about rich and poor. It's more about good and bad. He's not necessarily just talking about rich people and poor people. He's talking about those who are perceived as being good, having God's favor. You're rich, you're powerful, you have influence, you belong here. And this other guy is ceremonially unclean. He's dingy, he's dirty, he's not necessarily prepared to worship, so you don't necessarily belong here. And James says, do not, listen, withhold or provide, next slide, anything based on those external appearances. No matter who those people are, no matter how many rings they have or don't have, what they're wearing, what they're not wearing, no matter how prepared they are to be here at church. And man, oh man, do we not have a vision for how somebody should look when they walk into this place? Or do we not have a vision for how somebody shouldn't look when they walk into this place? He says, do not withhold blessing or from that person based on external appearances or don't provide extra blessing, extra deference to that other individual based on their external appearances. Don't do that. Then he gives us the reason uh, for why he's saying this. And, and now, here, here's, here's where he makes this turn. Now he's going to coax us into his little joke. <laughs> And this is not a joke for James, but he's going to start asking some questions that are going to draw some things out of you and me. Draw some things out of our hearts. Draw some things out of who we are. And he's going to get to a conclusion that's the good news about Jesus. So here's his reason. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Okay, why would you so show deference to the rich when God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? What James is saying here is that the poor in the world are often rich in faith. This is not always the case. I've got a lot of people, friends of mine, who are wealthy in the eyes of the world, but they're also rich towards God. But that is not an easy thing to do, to be rich in the world and rich towards God. In fact, it's almost as easy, or it's even more difficult for a camel to fit through an eye of a needle. And a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So uh, it's a complicated thing. It's not impossible. It's just complicated. But, but what happens is when you don't have material things in this world clouding your vision, it's a little easier to see God, don't you think? Now, some of you are old enough, you've been walking with God long enough, you can look back on your life and say, the times where I've had the least in the world to cling to are the times where I've clung the closest to God, don't you think? The times where I've been poor in the eyes of the world, and not just 
poor when it comes to money, but poor when it comes to relationships, poor when it comes to education, when circumstances aren't going my way, when the things I expected to happen didn't happen, when, you know, every silver lining has a cloud in your life, you know, and things are really challenging and really difficult. Those are the times when we have nothing else to cling to than we cling to God. That's what happens with those who are poor in the eyes of the world. They are oftentimes rich in faith. And why is that the case? James tells us, he says, that God has chosen that to be the case. And because God has chosen for the poor in the world to be rich in faith, when we dishonor the poor, when we dishonor the outcast, when we dishonor the disabled or those that are different from us, and when we show favoritism, that favoritism dishonors God, right? It's God's plan to use the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to further his kingdom. And so when we turn that on its head, we're turning the gospel on its head. We're turning the kingdom on its head. We're turning God's plan on its head and dishonoring God in the process. Okay, so why? Why is it that God has chosen to do that? Let me illustrate. I had the opportunity a few years ago to, the, to, a few years ago to go to the Eastern Conference Finals in the NBA. Uh, it was here in Toronto, and a friend of mine invited me, and uh, it was uh, LeBron James and whoever else played for the Cavs, and, and then the Raptors, right? And we lost that series 4-2. to two. And for those of you who, who remember, you will remember this. For those of you who don't, I'll just fill you in. That year, it was like the plagues of Egypt swept through the Cavaliers team. I swear to you. Like, every person on that team was injured other than LeBron. Kevin Love got injured. Matthew Delvadova got injured. Like every single guy on that team, they were completely plagued with, inner, uh, with injuries. So by the time they got to the Eastern Conference Finals, the starting lineup for the Cavaliers was like LeBron James, uh, Doug Ford, <laughs> me, Shania Twain. I mean, it was not... It was not the NBA, you know, the, the all-star team by any stretch of the imagination. And I spoiled it a minute ago, but the Cavaliers most definitely beat the Raptors 4-2 to in the Eastern Conference Finals. And I sat back and I thought, oh my gosh, that LeBron James is literally the greatest basketball player of all time. Like, he just won the Eastern Conference Finals with him and a bunch of cardboard cutouts of basketball players. Like, this is unbelievable. Like, his greatness was just so highlighted and extraordinary. It really was unbelievable. Some of you NBA fans, you remember. Watch this. When God chooses the poor in the world to accomplish his kingdom purposes, when God chooses the undereducated, when God chooses those who are maybe disabled, maybe not quite as competent, maybe those who have been forgotten about and ostracized in the eyes of the world to win when he chooses them to accomplish his win. And check this, he always wins. When he does that, it puts his greatness on display, doesn't it? And we go, oh my gosh, God accomplished that with just this? With just me, with just you, with these humble, meager, broken things? And puts his greatness on display. He says, so don't show partiality because that dishonors God's plan. Number two, uh, you have dishonored the poor man, James says. This is reason number two. Uh, 
why you shouldn't show partiality, because you have dishonored the poor man. What James is saying is that favoritism also dishonors man. And why? Go back one slide. Why? Because are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name to which you were called? James is saying, you're like, and, and you know, I just use this example here, and, I, and honestly, I hear it from a tender heart. But you know, we, even, we have the opportunity to counsel women here who have been in abusive relationships. And, and there are times, not all the time, but there are times when that woman goes back to that abusive relationship. And we beg her to not go, and we beg her to not go, and we beg her to not go. It's like you are showing deference to, you are giving of yourself to this person who's abused you. And James is saying in the same way, you've dishonored the poor man because these rich people are oppressing you, they're litigating you, they're blaspheming the very name to which you were called, they're abusing you, they're taking advantage of you, and here you are running up and snuggling up into bed with them because they're rich, because they look good on the outside. And when you do that and you neglect the poor, James says that you've also dishonored man. You've not just dishonored God, but favoritism dishonors man. So here's what we've got. We've got the principle, don't show partiality. We've got the example, rich and poor, good and bad. And then we've got the reason, because it dishonors God and dishonors man. Now watch James make this turn towards the place he really wants to go. And this is the good news. Here it is. And when he gives us good news, he's going to give us bad news first. Buckle up. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as a transgressor. James says this, watch. If you show partiality... You are not just an individual who has broken the law of don't be or don't be partial, don't show partiality. That's not what you are. You have rendered yourself a lawbreaker, a transgressor, when you've shown partiality. So, so it's not just about that one thing you've done, it's about the whole shooting match. James goes on, listen to him, hammer it in. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. Yikes. So God has given all these rules, all these laws. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. All for our joy, all for our protection, all for complete human flourishing, all because he loves us, but he's given all these laws. And here's the deal. What we like to do is say, you know what, of these 10 big ones, right? The 10 big ones, often called the 10, Ten Commandments, right? I've busted three of them, but the other seven are intact. I've busted two of them. That one I've busted a little bit, but I think I fixed it, right? And it's, so the count here is seven to the good and three to the bad. I think I'm good. I think I'm good. We play the comparison game. And I hear people do this all the time. And the two of the Ten Commandments that they always pick in order to prove that they're acceptable to God, it's always two. I've never killed anybody, and I've never cheated on my spouse. I'm like, your expectations are radically low, right? This is what it takes to be a good person. Don't cheat on your spouse, 
and don't take anyone's life? Wow, wow, okay? So James knows that that's always our excuse, so watch what he says. He says, for he who said, don't commit adultery, also said, don't commit murder. Also said, don't be partial. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. And I watch people try to wiggle their way out of this all the time by playing the comparison game. This guy has broken three of the Big Ten Commandments. I've only broken two. I'm better than him. Okay, this guy has broken five of the Ten Commandments. I've only broken four. I'm better than him. And the more of the Ten Commandments you break, the lower your threshold tends to go. Right? I don't know. I, don't, how many, I want you to raise your hand because I've had this conversation a thousand times. I wonder if you've had the same conversation. They talk, talk about people like, hey, where are you going to go when you die? I'm going to go to heaven. Okay? How do you know that? Well, I'm a pretty good person in general. You know, I'm no whatever. And they fill in the blank with someone. And it's always the same someone. You want to know who it is? Hitler. That's who they always pick. I know I'm going to heaven, man, because I've been a pretty good person. You know, I'm no Hitler. Whoa! Like, I'm no Pol Pot. I hope not. Right? And that's the, that's, that's the minimum expectation. If, as long as you're better than a genocidal maniac, you're good. And James comes along and goes, this is, this is silly. He said, no one wins in the comparison game. No one wins. There are only losers because every time you compare yourself to somebody else and go, I've never done that. I've never done that. Oh man, they are really messed up. I'm not that messed up. Right? Every time you do that, God comes along and goes, well, have you always been impartial? Have you ever withheld something from somebody based on their appearance or have you ever showed deference or have you ever given something to someone based on their appearance or based on external things? Okay, so it's not just that one law that you've broken, but you've broken the whole thing. Why? Because God's law is more about the lawgiver, not the laws themselves. It's not just about, you know, I keep this, I keep this, I keep this, I busted that, I busted that, but for the most part, I have more pieces intact than I do broken. God says, no, it's my law, so it's about offending me. So if you've broken one, you've broken them all. In other words, God's law is like a single mirror. It's not a series of mirrors. Stick with me on this. Picture 20 mirrors hanging on a wall. You walk up with a hammer. You got 20 hanging up there, and you break one with the hammer. Crash, and it goes. How many mirrors do you have left? Not complicated. How many mirrors do you have left? 19. 19. What if you have one big mirror? One single mirror? Same surface area as those other 20 mirrors. One single mirror. Walk up and hit it with a hammer. How many mirrors do you have left? Zero. See, God says, that's what my law is like. It's like a single mirror. You hit one, you hit them all. You break one, you break them all because you've rendered yourself a transgressor of the law. You've rendered yourself a lawbreaker. So now you stand before me separated from me. You stand before me as a transgressor of the law. You stand before me as an offender of God. I don't care if you have 18 mirrors left and that other person has 15. I don't care if you have two mirrors left and Hitler has negative four. Like, I don't care. That's not what it's about, God says. It's about my mercy and about your desperate need for me because you stand before me as a transgressor of the law. This is his punchline here. He wants this weight of sin. 
He wants this weight of, of, of rejecting God's law to sit heavy on us, even if it's something as small in our minds as showing partiality. It's, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't cheat on my spouse. And, and James says, even partiality, even showing deference to someone because of their external appearances, even withholding because of their external appearances, even that, because God loves everybody equally, is an offense to the lawgiver. And here's the thing. We all show partiality, whether you like it or not. Because when I read this text this week, here, here's the first thing I thought. I read this text this week, and I pictured in my head somebody with a bunch of rings coming into Bayview Glen. And I'm like, well, if somebody comes into Baby Glenn with like a bunch of rings on their fingers. I run the other way, right? Not towards them. That's creepy, right? I just run the other way. But then over the course of the week, as I'm letting this thing simmer and I'm thinking about partiality and I'm thinking about showing deference and I'm thinking about the way I judge people, judge their character, judge their personality, simply based on external appearances, convince me very, very quickly that I show partiality a lot more often than I think. A buddy of mine is in town. We were driving on Thursday, and we were looking at, uh, on the 404, we were looking at cars that have vanity plates. Do you know what a vanity plate is? You know, it says, like, you know, like on their license plate, like they use characters, numbers, or whatever to spell out something about themselves. We saw one that said cat lover. Two problems with that, right? One is, like, that's the thing you want everybody to know about you, Right? That's your core identifier, that you love cats? Um, second response is, I love cats too. They taste just like chicken. So they're really, really lovely, right? So they're, so they're fine. So he and I start making fun of people with vanity plates. And some of you in the room probably have vanity plates. We may have been making fun of you. I don't know. We started talking about the one that has, like, uh, you know, the, it's, the, it's the name of the person driving along with the model of the car, Jenny's Benz, right? Just in case you forget that your name is Jenny and you drive a Benz, right? That it's on your license plate. Like, I just think that's atrocious. It's just so embarrassing for that person. And Jenny, if you're here, I'm sorry, but I just, oh, man, I'd, and I'm, we're making fun of people. And it's purely based on external things. Completely partial. Don't show partiality. And here I am showing partiality based on vanity plates. I haven't talked about them very much uh, with you guys, but I, I have a friend, um, uh, a couple friends, but one, one in particular is a good friend that plays professional baseball. And he's older now. He's a couple years away from ending his career. But uh, I met him when he was young, like 24, 25 and he hadn't really kind of broken out. He's done really well in his career. Hadn't really broken out at the time. Didn't have children at the time. Now he, now he has five. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I had to sit him down and have a heart to heart. You know, the come to Jesus talk, where you're like, man, you have got to close up shop. Like it's got to be that's that's four too many. If five is four too many, like you got to be done with the kids. So I had that talk with him two weeks ago. He was in town. I'm like, dude, you are done with the kids. And he said, did I tell you that Allison's pregnant? I'm like, oh, my gosh, buddy, you've got to quit. Like, you've got to quit. So I met him when he was 24, 25 years old. 
didn't really make a career of baseball, hadn't really made a career of baseball yet. When they had their first child, Amy and I were the first ones to the hospital, right? It's a buddy. We share stuff, like close friend, iron sharpens iron, good, good man. The other part of the story that you need to know is that I really love baseball. Like, I slept with a baseball bat my entire childhood. I did. There's pictures of me doing it. Amy still lets me sleep with it twice a month, and I love those Tuesdays, right? They're very, it's very nice to sleep with that baseball bat. I used to sit and watch television and score baseball games. Like, I take out my score pad and score it. I know stats. I read the back of baseball cards. Like, I knew the whole thing. And this friend of mine, who I'm five years older than him, like, you know, I kind of have my career and family and stuff too. When he puts on that uniform, buddy, I turn into a 12-year-old girl at a Justin Bieber show. Man, I just <laughs> turn into a puddle of goo. I'm like, what can I do for you? And how, oh my gosh, you're so handsome. Oh, just like, I don't know what to do. And like, I just get so excited. I'm like, Dad, what does that say about me? Like, you guys... It does not take us very long to look into our own hearts and be very honest and go, you know what, I do show partiality. Because of someone's vocation, because of how much they weigh, because of how good or bad a driver they are, because of their ethnicity, because of their age. And listen close, men and women of God, listen close. Not, James is not saying, don't be a jerk to people who are different than you. He's saying, deliberately engage in relationship with people who are different than you. So if you're old and you just don't want to be around young people, that's partiality. You need to stop it. And if you're young and you just don't like to be around old people, that's partiality. And you need to stop it. Because God has chosen those that are maybe poor in the eyes of the world to be rich toward him. So, James concludes, here we go, speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, the law that gives freedom, the liberation and freedom from all of that comparison game that Christ gives you. Speak that way, act that way, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that phrase, mercy, triumphs over judgment. When we extend grace, when we extend favor, when we deliberately engage with those who are different than us, when we dig our heels in and refuse to show partiality, God himself continues to pour his grace upon grace upon grace on our lives. This is exactly what Jesus said. He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The reason that James walks us through this whole process, instead of just telling us, stop showing favoritism. The reason that he walks us through this whole process is because he knows that fixing partiality in our life and being people that don't play favorites, being people that love and engage and serve all men and women equally is not about deciding one day, I'm not going to play favorites anymore. It's about deciding one day that I'm going to see myself accurately through God's eyes. I'm going to see myself how God sees me as a lawbreaker, as a transgressor who is desperately in need of his grace. 
And then when I'm empowered by, renewed by, transformed by his grace, then when I live out of that place, I'm now speaking and acting as someone who is to be judged under the law of liberty. Let's just drop it like this. Eliminating favoritism begins with humility before God. Eliminating partiality in their life, eliminating that bitterness, that anger, that withholding, all that stuff. It doesn't begin by deciding you're going to be nicer to people. It begins by saying, I'm humbled before God and he will transform and empower me to do just that. So I'd ask you to bow with me. I want to ask two questions uh, today and and, uh, then we're going to conclude with a song. The first question is this, is can you, just between you and God, just between you and God, can you just ask God, God, would you maybe bring to mind a person or a name or a group of people that I treat differently because of their appearances, because of his appearance, because of her appearance, because they annoy me just a little bit? Because they've got too much money or not enough. Because of their sexual orientation. Because of whatever. And if you're anything like me, the minute you ask that question and pray that prayer in boldness, that God tends to answer pretty quick and bring something or someone to mind. So if you have it, here's the next thing I would invite you to do is to see yourself accurately through the eyes of God. Not as somebody who's broken one or two mirrors in a set of 20, but someone who has broken one mirror in desperate need of God to intervene and restore and put that mirror back together again. And when we see ourselves as busted and broken before God, as transgressors, as lawbreakers, when we see ourselves that way, and then we see God as merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, then what we can do is we can take that favoritism, we can take that partiality, we can take that sin that we struggle with and bring it underneath, even in your mind's eye, bring it underneath the good news about Jesus. Submit it to God. Submit it to the power of the gospel. Understand that partiality, that favoritism, whatever. Understand it in light of the good news about Jesus, that he came to rescue you and me, sinners, even when we were far from God. So rather than trying to be people who modify our behavior, we then become people who are transformed from the inside out and we extend God's unconditional love and grace, his lack of partiality, his lack of favoritism, to anyone and everyone that he brings into our path. God, may we be a people who communicate your love and your care. God, who demonstrate the good news about Jesus um, by being people who love unconditionally, who love equally. People who don't withhold relationship or time or money or whatever based on external appearances, people who don't show deference and invest a little extra and go the extra mile just to impress somebody because we think they need to be impressed. But God, that we would see ourselves accurately through your eyes and that we would speak and act in that way. 
the name of Christ God's people together said, amen. As we conclude our worship this morning, our ushers are going to come forward to receive our morning offering. There are a couple of ways that you can give. When that plate comes by, you can give. There's ways to give digitally on the screen behind me. I won't walk you through those. You can read those. A couple things, though, and, and, and just so you know, if you're brand new with us, please don't feel obligated to give in any way. Uh, we, we don't expect that from you. If you want to worship in that way, you're more than welcome to. We don't expect that from you. This is an opportunity for those of us who call this place home to worship through giving and ask God to create within us grateful hearts and contented hearts as we give humble offerings that will not last forever to the kingdom of God that will last forever. So God, we pray as we do every week that as we give, your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.